Happy Ascension Sunday. As Travis told us earlier this morning, today is Ascension Sunday. Though I am not an artist, I imagine one of the most important questions for an artist is what medium to use. If there was ever a story made for the flannel graph, I think it was the ascension of Jesus. So this morning we're going to tell the story of the ascension on the flannel graph. My friend Tucker is on his way out here. You can welcome Tucker if you want. So far this is going better than the first service. The first service we, we toppled everything over. But we're all in one piece today. So this is our beautiful flannel graph. Let's add some trees. Ooh. Plot twist. There's a tree here. All right, so the story of the ascension. We have Jesus, according to Luke, right here, who leads a group of disciples out to a place around Bethany. So we have all these disciples, including the 12 and maybe some others as well. And in another uh, version of the story, it tells us that Jesus did all sorts of um, signs and he was with the disciples for 40, ye 40 years, 40 days. So here we go. We've got some disciples here. It says that Jesus lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now, I found this particular uh, female disciple interesting. She looks a little bit like Snow White. You know, Snow White is in the story. Some more disciples. So Jesus is leading them out. Then suddenly, this is where it gets exciting. Poof, Jesus is in the clouds, ascending <laughs> to heaven. Flannel on flannel. All right, thank you, Tucker. It's a fantastic story, isn't it? But beyond the fuzzy felt, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? And when we greet each other on a day like this, should we say, happy Ascension Sunday? I think Ascension Sunday is the Valentine's of the church calendar. I think maybe to the disciples, it kind of felt like Single Awareness Day. It would sort of be like a jerk thing to say to the disciples, um, happy Jesus left you day, right? <laughs> or happy where did Jesus go day? It's a, bit, it's a bit like rubbing it in. Or is it? Okay, so I left out an important part on the flannel graph. After Jesus raises his hand and he blesses the disciples, it says that they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. The disciples are thrilled about the ascension. But Why? They are thrilled because the ascension of Jesus means the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus is made sovereign and supreme. He ascends to the throne at the right hand of the Father. This is good news to the disciples. It means to them that their guy is promoted, that he's crowned, that he's powerful, that he's in charge. And notice, Jesus ascends still wearing his humanity. And that is why it is good news for humanity. Because here's where it gets really good. The early Christians believed that if Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, 
so are we. Paul said it like this, And God raised up us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We died with Christ. We raised with Christ. And in a way, we now sit with Christ, with the Father. Revelation 3.21 says, To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I am victorious, and sat down with my Father on his throne. So let's be clear. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father on a throne that has room for us. On a throne that maybe, in a way, is like a double-decker couch. So everyone can sit and watch TV together and be buddies. No. Do you remember Jesus' prayer in the book of John? When he prays for those who will believe in him, his future disciples, which include us, do you remember that prayer? He prays that we would be one. As he is one with the Father, he prays that we would be in them. And, as Travis said earlier today, he is praying for us now. Romans 8, 34 says, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The ascension of Jesus is Jesus' prayer answered. And the ascension, it messes with our understanding of heaven. I know it did for Dennis Kinlaw, who came to this conclusion after reading, preparing a sermon on the ascension. He said, God has made it possible for me to live in his presence every moment so that heaven actually begins for me right now in time and in space. But I thought heaven was somewhere up there. Right? N.T. Wright says, heaven and earth in biblical language are not two different locations within the same continuum of space or matter. They are two different dimensions of God's good creation. Heaven and earth, in other words, are though very different, not far from one another. The ascension, therefore, means that Jesus, instead of being way up there, is available, accessible, without people having to travel to a particular spot on earth to find him. This is why Jesus could say with a straight face to his disciples that it was better for him if he were to leave them. So then we are with Jesus, who is with the Father, and heaven can be experienced now, not just later. The ascension doesn't mean that God is farther away. The ascension means that God is closer than ever before. That is why today is Happy Ascension Sunday. But we are getting ahead of ourselves in the story. In the passage for today, Jesus' disciples don't know all of this yet. And they are not yet celebrating and worshiping God. They're back in the scene where Jesus is speaking vaguely but intensely about his leaving them, about his impending arrest and death. It's a fragile moment, to say the least. Let's read it again. 
John, beginning with chapter 16, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Let's carefully unpack these words of Jesus. First, Jesus says that he has more to say. Before we narrow this to the disciples' interaction with these words, let us think about them more broadly. Jesus has more to say. Now, we have to be cautious here with the idea of new revelation. It seems as though there was more revelation to come for the disciples because Jesus was not done with them yet. But for us, I don't mean new revelation per se. What I mean is that Jesus has more to say to us in what he's already said for us in the scriptures. Jesus has more to say to us in what he's already said in the scriptures. There's enough in the words and the activity of Jesus thus far in the Gospel of John to feed us for a lifetime. And there's more. There's more than that. My friend John Jury leads a Bible study for our teens every Tuesday morning. And he takes them through the book of John in about three or four years. And that probably feels like sprinting to John because the scriptures are so rich with what Jesus has to say to us. Richard Rohr says, mystery isn't something you cannot understand. It is something that you can endlessly understand. The Bible is a book that we can endlessly understand. Jesus has so much more to say to us and what he's already said to us in the scriptures. But in the moment, for the disciples, the phrase, I have much more to tell you, was eating at them. They wanted to know so badly, to understand the strange things that Jesus was saying to them. But Jesus explains himself. Next he says, you cannot bear it now. I have more to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. Jesus knows what the disciples can handle. They do not. And I think it is true for us today as well. And our questioning of God, our desiring of information from God, our wanting of answers. Paul said, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. In this passage, Jesus is saying, I will not tell you more than you can bear. Sometimes, just like it was for the disciples, our unknowing is the grace of God. There is a sign at the beginning of the trail to Angel's Landing in Zion National Park. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've read this very sign. It says, strenuous climb, narrow route with cliff exposures. 
hazardous during thunderstorms, darkness and ice, snow conditions. Several years ago, my friends and I read that sign with the glow of our headlamps. We decided to hike the 2.4 miles up 5,790 feet to the top in the dark. Even during the day, Angel's Landing is not for the faint of heart. Most hikers don't get beyond Scout's Lookout, which is just beyond a strenuous series of 21 steep switchbacks called Walter's Wiggles. It's not as fun as it sounds. Here's a full picture of Angel's Landing. Kind of see it curved there in the back, and part of it is to the right. Uh, beyond the picture. When we got to Scout's Lookout, our legs were burning. But determined to make the summit, we shined our headlamps on chains fixed to the side of giant rock formations along the last half-mile trek up narrow paths and crumbling drop-offs. How How hazardous it was, we didn't know. For we couldn't see down the 5,000 foot edge into the darkness. The top angel's landing that night was a spectacular show of stars, unaffected by competing headlamps, headlights, street lights, house lights, just the stars. But here's what I know for sure. I never would have made it to the top if I could see. If I could see beyond the glow of my headlamp, I would not have dared to make the ascent. Jesus knows how much we can bear. In times of confusion, darkness, and unknowing, we want the light of the sun, but God gives us a flashlight out of his grace. Here is a sign of life to bring us into our series. If you have no idea what's going on in your life, Except what is right in front of you, perhaps it's because the Spirit is guiding you. If you've got it all figured out, maybe you're on your own. This reminds me of our dear friend Bilbo Baggins and the sign that the wizard Gandalf put on his door, unaware to Bilbo, that read, Burglar wants a good job, plenty of excitement and reasonable reward. The truth is, that's the last thing Bilbo wanted. That's the last thing any respectable hobbit would want. They're adverse to adventures. If you haven't read the book, but you've seen the movies, please know they messed it up. But there are some fantastic scenes, and none as perfect as the unexpected party. When the dwarves arrived, at Bilbo's bag end, uninvited by the hobbit, though invited by Gandalf, he would later find out, who think the hobbit is an expert burglar who will help them get their gold back and defeat the dragon under the mountain. If none of this makes sense to you, don't worry. The point is, Bilbo gets set up by Gandalf, and we get set up by God. God, I think, is like Gandalf. Or I should say, Gandalf is like God. 
and that God takes utter joy in setting us up on adventures, on guiding us. The unexpected is God's gift to us. But we are often like those who ask questions. What's happening? What's the meaning of this during the movie? Instead of letting it play out. It's better to let it play out. God's other name is surprise, said John Claypool. And this next thing Jesus says surprised the disciples. Jesus' next words were, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Some theologians would say that a more helpful translation for today would be guide us in the path of truth. Because truth is not just the end. It is also the means for John. Raymond Brown says it like this, Truth is not the goal of the paraclete's guidance, for the guidance itself is the truth. This makes even more sense when we understand that the word aletheia, most often translated truth in John, can also be translated real or genuine or authentic. It isn't about the truth we often think of, intellectual truth, knowledge, It has a moral flavor to it. It is a different kind of knowing. Like love is a kind of knowing. So the Spirit will guide the disciples, not give the disciples answers. The truth is not where they're going as much as it is in their going. They find truth. This is why some of the best memories of vacation are on the road in the car, or sometimes on the side of the road, in the detours and the discoveries, not just in the destinations. When you are following Jesus, the question, are you there yet, is always a yes. Because truth is not something far away, but right beside us. Truth is with us. Truth is in us. Truth is guiding us along the way of truth. Now it's important to pause here. The first century person would not read this passage as we do, which is first as individuals. The first century person would read this, they would hear this as having communal implications. The Spirit is guiding us was their default thinking. I think this is an important perspective because I think we miss a lot of the guiding of the Spirit because we think it's only a one-on-one conversation. While the Spirit has something to say to all of us and sometimes guides all of us together. More about that later. The next verse reads, He will not speak on his own, said Jesus. He will speak only what he hears. We often think of the Spirit as spontaneous. But here it seems that the Spirit has nothing original to say. The Spirit speaks what he hears from Jesus. In fact, earlier Jesus says, the Spirit will remind you of everything I said. Here's what this means to me. The Spirit's voice sounds a lot like Jesus' voice. 
because he speaks Jesus' words. So we are more likely to recognize the Spirit now guiding our lives if we know what Jesus said then. If you want to be better at discerning the Spirit, spend time in the Gospels with Jesus' words. The content is often the same. And here's what's fantastic about this. The Spirit speaks only what he hears from Jesus. And Jesus doesn't speak on his own, but only what the Father commands him. The Spirit says what Jesus says, what the Father says. And the Father sent the Son who sent the Spirit. And we can only understand Jesus because of the Spirit. And because of Jesus, we know what God is like. I don't understand that, but it's beautiful. We are caught up in a conversation with God that God is also having about himself to us. It's beautiful. And we can see this as we read on. Jesus says to the disciples next, and he will tell you what is yet to come. This is the information they really want. And I think by this, Jesus means the things that the disciples cannot bear yet the things that will happen to their Jesus. Jesus then says, of the Spirit, He will glorify me because it is from me that He will receive what He will make known to you. And, that belong, and all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what He will make known to you. So, if the Spirit speaks only what Jesus tells him to, and Jesus has access to all that belongs to the Father, then through the Spirit, we can know the will of God. But here's the thing. What we usually mean when we talk about the will of God is not what we find here in John. It's something better, I think. In fact, I think we have this whole the will of God thing messed up. And I think a, a fun way to say this is to think about it through the dark side of birth order personality. Of course, these are generalities. Sometimes we miss the will of God as the firstborn child. For the firstborn child, the will of God is for me to be uber responsible. The Spirit wants me to achieve, 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 and to be perfect. When we view the will of God as the firstborn child, the question of the will of God can be excruciating. It at times can be paralyzing. Sometimes we view the will of God as the middle child. The middle child has no idea what the will of God is. In fact, the middle child hasn't seen God for a while. And he thinks everyone knows the will of God but him or her. When we view the will of God as a middle child, the, w the will of God can be something that disqualifies us, something that we're left out of. When we view the will of God as the youngest child, the will of God is something that everyone gets to participate in for us. And when life is hard, I must not be in the will of God. Because the will of God is when everything is happy in my life. 
to the youngest child, the will of God might be disappointing. And for the only child, the will of God is easy. I knew the will of God when I was five. What's next? When we view the will of God as an only child, the will of God might be deceiving. All of these modes of understanding the will of God are incomplete. But if we view the will of God as the way of God, we will see, like the first century Christian, that all that belongs to the Father is given to Jesus. And Jesus is giving that, the Spirit what to say. So the will of God is closer than we think. We'll see that the will of God has something to do with the future God has for us, the big decisions that we are facing, but it's more than that. It's more often than that. And we'll see that the will of God is something we share in. It's for our family, it's for our community, our church, as much as it is for me individually. Paul, I think, would define the will of God as being in step with the Spirit which sounds a lot like to John's along the way of truth to me. Galatians 5, which we read earlier this morning, gives us a picture of the fruit of the Spirit, what it looks like in a life that is living in step with the Spirit. But I think long before we are the kinds of Christians who produce lots of fruit of the Spirit, we have to taste the fruit of the Spirit. We have to try it. Let me share with you something that has been helpful for me in this whole conversation about the will of God. I started asking different questions using Galatians 5, using the fruit of the Spirit. I've been trying out the fruit. Instead of asking what's the right thing to do or what is the will of God for me in the situation, I've been asking what is the kind thing to do? What is the loving response? Where is the peace in this situation? How might I be patient in what's facing me? How could I show kindness to the face in front of me? What would be the good thing to do that's good not just for me, but good for all involved? How can I be faithful how would someone respond who was gentle in this situation? What way would self-control go? The more I ask these questions in my life, the questions that Galatians 5 gives us, the more I've been recognizing the everyday guiding of the Spirit. Not always in the spectacular, though sometimes, but in the subtle in the silence, and in the surprising. I came across a YouTube video a couple weeks ago that um, helped enforce this for me, maybe for you. It's me, Mario! It's me, Mario! Woohoo! Let's go! Okey-dokey. I've been the voice of Mario for 26 years. That's where we got the Luigi. Now moving on to Luigi. Oh, okay. 
Hi, I'm Charles Martinet. I do the voice of Super Mario. Here we go! Woohoo! And Luigi Thor, Luigi number one. Ha ha! And Wario, hey, Mario today. Yeah. Oh, you wanna eat that garlic? <laughs> and I was even Donkey Kong at one point. <laughs> I thought some of you Nintendo fans might enjoy that. For me, playing Mario games most of my life, I knew the voice of Mario, but not the person attached to the voice. It never occurred to me that the voice might actually belong to someone else. I think we know the Spirit's voice, but we don't know that we know the Spirit's voice. It's been guiding us, but we haven't called it that. Because we expect the spectacular, the Spirit is often subtle. I think we can find the will of God in the way of God by allowing the Spirit to guide us in the way of truth in our everyday lives. Galatians 5 was never meant to be an exhaustive list of the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's a starting point. I hope you try it, and I hope it's freeing to you. And I say that word freeing because I think God has a will for our life, but he doesn't want to will our life. He wants to free it. In fact, this is how Paul introduced chapter 5 in Galatians. He said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And about the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, against such things there is no law. The typical will of God questions that I've asked a lot in my life feel a lot like the law. Condemning, paralyzing, but the Spirit guiding us in the path of truth, that sounds freeing. It sounds open. Let me end with one last story today. And by the way, a few weeks ago, I was talking with my mom and dad about this day, about a few sermons I had coming up. And I asked them if they wanted to come. And of course, uh, my parents said yes. And then my dad added, he said, you know, I've been enjoying your sermons more lately. And I said, oh yeah? Thinking that what he meant was that I was getting better or something. But what he said was, I've been enjoying your sermons more lately because I've stopped showing up in them. I really appreciate that, he told me. So as an early Father's Day present, here's a story about my dad. Here's a recent picture of my dad. He's the one on the right. <laughs> and that's our friend Doris on the left. And to understand what's happening in this photo, we have to go back. My grandfather Bud was in the army with a guy named Ken. And this experience forged a lifelong friendship between Bud and Ken and then between their wives. On a day like today, I'm sure many of us are thinking about friendships like these. About the ones we know who have served, and especially those who died serving. Now, Bud and Martha and Ken and Doris would get together at least twice every single year. Once in Ohio, in the small town where I grew up next to my grandparents, and once in Indianapolis, in Speedway, Indiana. 
It's more specifically where Ken and Doris lived. I remember, I remember as a child loving it when Ken and Doris would visit. And I remember marveling at their friendship with my grandparents and how it had lasted over the years. And we said Ken and Doris like it was one word. Ken and Doris. Now it's just Doris. I imagine losing a spouse feels something like being a few out-of-place letters that were once one word. I imagine that it takes time to collect those scattered letters and find new meaning. And I'm sure my dad on this day of this photo felt a little bit like misplaced letters, remembering the stories of his father. We all feel this way at times. Our lives find meaning in a collection of people. And when that collection is scattered, we feel scattered as well. And so on this day, Bruce and Doris and I, tagging along, got lunch. And my dad and, and Doris told stories about my grandparents, about their adventures with Ken and Doris. And we were in Speedway on this day, where the Indy 500 is held, which is happening today. So we talked about the race and the many years getting together with that as the reason. And we laughed a lot, but nothing spectacular happened that day. But as I reflect on that day, I see the Spirit guiding I'm thankful for my dad because he is a man who lives in step with the Spirit. He's a spiritual man, and I think it's a spiritual thing to invite somebody out for lunch. We often look for the Spirit and the spectacular, but I think it's often in the subtle. It's in the invitation to a table. It's in a phone call. It's in doing something difficult. I know in my own life that I found myself asking the will of God question because I'd already heard the Spirit's voice and I didn't want to do it. I'm thankful my dad invited Doris to lunch that day. I think it was as good for her as it was for him and even for me. My question for us today is, where is the Spirit already guiding you? Who is the person on your heart? Maybe the person that is in the way of God that you are on, the path that you are on with God. What would it look like to be kind what would it look like to be good? What would it look like to be faithful? And so on, as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 shows us.